I went over to Paradise Games. So Rob North and I sat down to do a podcast and talk about the business. And we had a great discussion. And so about 20 minutes into the discussion, I, and I noted because I looked at my watch when we started, and then I looked down and I was going to check the timer on the recorder, and the recorder was at zero. <laughs> we hadn't recorded anything. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with game designer Trevor Bender. His recent trip to WBC, how he managed to get Labyrinth the Awakening on the list of tournaments there, and his work on Labyrinth Forever War. Thanks for listening. World Board Game Championships have been around since 1991. From 1991 to 1998, Avalon Hill Games Incorporated hosted the Avalon Con World Board Game Championships. Avalon Hill Inc. was sold to Hasbro in 1998. Don Greenwood of Avalon Hill fame was the founder of Avalon Con and later the WBC and remains the WBC convention manager. I remember my first visit to WBC six years ago. I checked in to get my badge and have my photo taken. The gentleman that accepted my paperwork was Don Greenwood. The gentleman that took my photo was Charlie Kibler, the prolific graphics artist going back to upfront and before, and game designer, including many things ASL. I didn't make it to WBC this year, but Trevor Bender did. Trevor Bender worked with Volko Runka on the design of Labyrinth Expansion, The Awakening, and is currently working on the latest Labyrinth Expansion, Forever War. I share a more extensive resume, Trevor, on Herald on Games, podcast number 19. I enjoy gaming with Trevor. He lives here in San Diego. He's playtested just about everything I've designed, and he's been an excellent sounding board for me. He also wrote the article for Strategy and Tactics 316 on my game in the same issue, Campaigns of 1777. Ironically, the typo on the cover of that issue that carries the article name rather than the game was the name of his article. But the one thing that characterizes Trevor to me is that Trevor loves to win more than anyone else I know. It makes him a great competitive opponent. That coupled with his high intellect. Normally, I wouldn't share that. We're not playing NFL football here. But you really need to understand that to listen to this podcast and hear his explanation of where his heart was when playing a final at WBC. And Trevor has a huge heart. We'll start this interview with a question on his experience at this year's WBC. I actually went last year and I took my family. It was pretty cool. We did an East Coast trip and traveled, uh, landed in, uh, in in Philadelphia, or excuse me, Pittsburgh, but then immediately went to Philadelphia and all up north and saw the Northeast and then came back and caught the first weekend at WBC. And um, that was a lot of fun. My, my kids didn't participate in tournaments, although my daughter did open gaming. She, oh, good. She's a Lost Cities fan. So, oh, good. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to see in that part of the country, certainly for those of us from California. 
yeah, uh, a lot of history and a lot of interesting things. But I certainly this year you also sent back some interesting pictures. What did you last couple of years? What have you seen? Yeah, so the first trip we uh, went Philadelphia all the way up to Niagara Falls and everything in between. So there's a lot of cool sites there. But what this year was a surprise to me as I was finishing up the last round. I played Transamerica as the last game on Sunday morning. You know, you're <laughs> trying to burn time before your flight. My flight wasn't till six, and as I was losing to a ten-year-old. The woman next to me said, uh, you know, if you got time to kill, go to the Flight 93 Monument. I, you know, having been the designers of uh, games on current events, I knew what Flight 93 was. I had no idea it was that close to Pittsburgh. Wow. So a uh, half-hour drive, opposite direction. I had plenty of time and spent two hours at that site. And you saw my post on Facebook. It brought right. tears to my eyes. Yeah, you said it was powerful. Yeah, it was very powerful. Yeah. Recommended to anybody. Interesting. So did you uh, did you do any Civil War-ish, American Revolutionary War-ish stuff in between? But this is certainly Gettysburg, uh, a little bit south. It was, way yeah. Across. Trying to think. Um, that we, I did not see any battlefields. Um, right. Well, we'll need to fix although, that next year. I was on a business trip in Fredericksburg last week, though, and uh, saw a bunch of that's stuff. That's a good one. I'll, I'll, can I jump, jump into that? Please, quick? love to hear it. So uh, I work as a consultant to the Navy, and they had us do a conference there in Fredericksburg. Um, it's cheaper to fly in through Charlottesville instead of flying in through Washington, D.C., and you also miss a bunch of traffic. So as I'm driving along, I think it's Route 3, which is the old Orange Plank Road, if I remember right, coming in at night, uh, twilight, and I stumble across Wilderness Battlefield. One of the battlefields I had not toured, but I played Bloody Road South and other games on the Wilderness course. That's the big battle in 1864, May 5th and 6th, where Lee crushed Grant's army only to have Grant say, I'm not going back to D.C. I'm going to turn around your left flank and or your right flank and keep going. And uh, I toured the battlefield all by myself in a rainstorm with lightning in the background. It was so cool and surreal. And uh, see the spot where Longstreet was wounded a year after Jackson was Longstreet. Or Jackson was wounded, same, you know, very close to the same spot and things like that. It was really cool. And um, then on the way back the next day, I came on Route 29, which is the blue and gray highway for the 29th Infantry Division, which was half recruited from Virginia and half recruited from Pittsburgh, or excuse me, Pennsylvania. Of course, it met its destiny at Normandy, um, but it was called blue and gray because of the Mason-Dixon boundary. And I uh, saw several of the scenarios that I designed for great campaigns, American Civil War, Kelly's Ford, um, Brandy Station, several others that uh, were played out when Ed Beach and I were designing 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, I love the weather here in Southern California, but I miss that stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that part of the country is just so rich with uh, with history, American history. And then you can imagine what it would be like to live uh, France, Germany, Italy. Oh, yeah. Right. I have not done that yet. I do that still. <laughs> yeah. Haven't lived there, but I've spent some time, and that's, uh, that's a great... You know, it drives my kids crazy. My wife can't stand it, but uh, I just, for hours, can spend hours walking around those museums and and battlefields. So it's a real treat. So WBC, you get to WBC, you got there early. You were there for a week and a half almost. No, it's a little different story. Um, family reunion up in Banff, Canada. You probably saw me pictures on Facebook. I on did. That. And so that kind of crunched things. So I took a red eye flight from San Diego, arrived Thursday morning before the last weekend. Immediately got there and jumped in a tournament of, I think it was Lost Cities, which was the one, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, played around there. Then I jumped into Starter Kit ASL, which I really enjoy. Um, um, and then my Labyrinth tournament that I was running, Labyrinth Awakening, uh, started the next day. We did a mulligan around there and then continued it on Saturday. So Friday night start Saturday. So those 
I also learned how to play Navigador. It's a Euro-style game. You've probably played it before. I, I had never played it before and got quickly eliminated in that one. But the ones that I went the furthest in were was my own tournament, Labyrinth Awakening, which I um, ran the mulligan around, won my first round. We had eight participants there. Two of them continued on. We advanced directly to the second round. We had four more new ones join in on the Saturday morning. So we had, starting at noon, a great four-player semifinal and was able to continue advancing and win my own tournament. So a little bit (laughs) both proud proud and a little bit ashamed of that, I guess. Maybe embarrassed is the better word. Um, It was good, though. We had some... uh, close games and people learn the system and, and are interested a lot of questions on forever war, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on the, the, the next expansion. But I really want to tell you about my experience in lost cities. Um, so labyrinth had 13 participants, not, not a big group, small. We had last year we had 19. So it was, but it was matched up against Washington's war last weekend. People were in their finals. I, I, I'm going to move it to the first uh, weekend next year. Not matched up against another. CD. It's all about timing. It is, um, and so and people told us that. You know, people who won in the first round bowed out because they had other stuff going on, and I, I understand. Lost Cities, of course, is a two-player Reiner Kinesi game. You're you're dealing a deck of cards, trying to build the biggest hands over five different colors of suits. Uh, easy to play. My wife loves it. My daughter loves it. 174 people signed up, so I um, joined in. It's four play in the first four rounds. If you win two games, you're guaranteed to advance. So that's the goal in the first four playings: just win two games. You play against the one opponent three games, highest score advances, that kind of thing. So to make it to the final round, you got to essentially win eight games straight. And and I did that, and I just couldn't believe it. I kept playing and winning, playing and winning, and playing and winning. And the opponent that I was matched up with was a 17 year old kid from Pittsburgh. A lot of locals from Pittsburgh attend WBC. I was impressed at how many were, were there. And uh, this was about 11 o'clock at night on Saturday. And we were in the same room as the, uh, what's the, Carcassonne tournament. And they had a, a video camera mounted with these big tiles, probably two inches by two inches. It was a deluxe set. But everybody was over there watching me and the 17-year-old kid play. Uh, he had his own cheering section of, uh, of a dozen teenagers who had also played in the tournament. And they were so happy to have one of their own, the new generation, uh, in there. And um, I had my couple adults who were cheering me on. It was kind of embarrassing. Did you go get any war gamers to come back in? I know. <laughs> what are you doing playing this game? So uh, – we paired off, you know, three rounds. He got an early 30-point lead. I nicked it a little bit in the second round. And then in the third round, I had a really good hand. I thought, I'm going to win this thing. And then about halfway through, <laughs> my heart changed. And I started cheering for him. <laughs> All these kids are cheering, and I just really wanted this kid to win. It reminded me so much of myself as a teenager going up to Strategicon in L.A. and showing adults a few things or two about gaming. I did not throw that game. I tried my best. I had a perfect hand, but his was more perfect, and he had his, his lead. And uh, But you were just as happy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Give that guy a big hug. That's great. I was so proud of him. Uh, and what that legacy will mean for him going on in, in other games, maybe. Sure. gaming. Who knows? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great cool. story. That's a great yeah. story, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I know how passionate you are about games and, and winning, and uh, you've played since you were a kid. We talked a few times about the you play with a group that you played with since high school. Yeah. Your high school math teacher. Yeah, Ken McMillan. Uh, yeah. Is, is a friend of ours and still runs your group. So uh, We just made a commitment to play Barbarossa to Berlin starting in September. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's uh, that's unique. It's you know for a guy like me that grew up in Ohio and lived in Texas and Boston, it's uh, you know I, I play with a group of guys that I love but I haven't known forever. So yeah, that's uh, that's a real treat to be able to play with those guys. So um, so did you uh, did you play any other war games while you were there? I know that this tournament probably had you buried. It did, and running, yeah, Labyrinth took up a day and a half, just make, just being there, um, rules, adjudications, and things. I, the only other one was ASL starter kit, which I made it to the third round in. I won the first two rounds in the third round. Uh, my opponent's flamethrower blew up in the first shot. I was so excited. I thought I have a chance in this, and all the rest of the dice rolls went just the opposite way for me. Was, that happens, you know. But uh, I love it. You go, you go from this touching story to the guy's the guy's flamethrower blew up. And I love that. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see that uh, that you're still as competitive. As you. um, is it hard to get a game? into the tournaments i mean what's the process you had to go through to get the awakening into the tournament system good question so it actually started three years ago um just as it was coming into print uh, and we we tried to put it in but didn't get enough votes then two years ago we still didn't get enough votes but each of the game publishers can, um, and part of the reason we didn't is because we listed Labyrinth as a tournament and Labyrinth Awakening as a tournament. So in a way, we kind of split the vote, but they probably, if they were the same, they might have gotten just about the same, maybe a few more. So we, this year, we we focused just on Labyrinth Awakening. Um, okay, so that's back to last year. GMT sponsored us as a tournament. And this year, even before the vote tally count was up, they again sponsored us as a tournament, which meant they had a $10 prize attached to the plaque for the first place winner, GMT, you know, discount. Um, they I, Each game publisher that sponsors uh, WBC is allowed to sponsor a number of events. I'm not sure how that works. They, I think they can also pay to have additional ones. So in that sense, it's not a true Centurion event. It didn't make the vote count for the top 100. Nevertheless, it was an official tournament. Oh, and, and we had a first and second place plaque. So what does so, that mean overall? You said there's a $10 benefit yes. to winning? Yeah, so just a GMT uh, discount. Not all tournaments have that. Most of them, you just get a wooden plaque. Right. And then most of the big tournaments, it's first through sixth place. You know, one of the side uh, prestige things is how many laurels you have. And any tournament you're in, involved in, the top six places get receive laurel points. And, you know, those with over 1,000 are doing really well over many years and that kind of a thing. The thing that I'm most proud about, though, is my number. I think I'm number 192, which meant that I attended the very first Avalon Con way back. And so most registration folks, have they're up in the 7,000, 8,000 people joining today. And I'm here, well, boy, you've been doing this a long time. Oh, <laughs> this is because cool. I was going to grad school at Georgetown. It was just up the road. It was, <laughs> it was up the road. Too. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. How has uh, WBC changed over the years? Much bigger and much more Euro. Um let me just give you a, a great question. So I walked the main board game hall, and there's this game out there that's called Wingspan. Have you heard about that? Yes. So lot, Yeah, I don't know anything about it except just that one spiel de jar. Yeah. Every woman at WBC was playing that game in, in board in open gaming. That's an exaggeration, of course, but it was very heavily being taught and beautiful graphics. I just don't know anything about the game, but that was dominating it. So I'm walking up and down the hall. Most of these games are Euros, and then I come to these two guys that are scratching their beards playing this clearly a World War II tactical naval combat game. <laughs> and I look at him, they both look at me, and I said, that's Savo Island, isn't it? And he says, oh, my goodness, somebody knows what Savo Island is. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, and they're just describing how the USS South Dakota went down, you know, historical things. And it was really fun. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a change. Yeah, so it, that's the big change because it was all Avalon Hill War Games in the early '90s. You know, Settlers of Catan came out I think in '95, if I remember right, somewhere around that time frame, and that was the beginning of the transformation. What's the buzz? What's the direction? What did, did, is there any talk? <laughs> What's the informal? You know, I, I sent you a pic. I think of the they have these iconic game. Um, plaques not plaques they're the displays that describe where the tournaments are and they're this is the last year they'll be used and they've been used for 20 years um oh interesting yeah so people were taking those home as souvenirs and they've got a new system coming up that's far easier to store so that's one thing is changing um i think it's just the, the nature of the games what surprises me though is how many of the old war games still have their core following you know many of them like africa core victory in the pacific whatnot they're still being played and you'll get you'll get twenty thirty people for them, so that's great. And of course, the card driven games are still very popular too. Sure, yeah. most popular war game there? Do you know? Um, probably Combat Commander. I would guess. Right. That's what I would guess. Right. In terms of number of entrants, but I wasn't there for the whole week. So right. yeah. The uh, the thing I always loved about it, I, I'm not terribly competitive or good at any game, but. Uh, but I always thought it was neat how they do it. You know, just coming from Gen Con, where if you want to play a game, you have to buy a ticket in addition to everything <laughs> else that you're paying to get yeah. there for $2 or 4 or 6 or whatever they charge for the, for that event. You have to buy the ticket, and then you go and you sit down and everything's prearranged. But WBC, there's a time when the tournament starts and you show up. Mm-hmm. And so unless there's a, a, a sort of a play-by-email component, to it and some of the games I think are played offline to play up to the, the, the tournaments very few of them but some of the war games it, it seems to me that it's really interesting that they that you, that you show up and, and actually if you have a game under your arm that you're the game that you're there to show up to play you're guaranteed play, you're guaranteed play. and so it, it just it seems to me to be the most um, just a fun open gaming opportunity that you can show up and bring the game and play it you guarantee the game Somebody may be much better than you. That's okay. Um, and there's usually a demo an hour before in a separate room where you can watch and be taught the game. You know, it, you describe something that is in itself as a game unto its own, which is how to manage and maximize your time while you're at the WBC. If you're a person like me that wants to be playing constantly, you look at your schedule and you come up, well, if I advance in the first round, I'm going to you know, continue on. Or if it's a heat where scheduled heats, like the first four rounds of Lost Cities were scheduled, um, you, you just figure out how to make it work. And you always have backup plans. If I lose in the first round of this, I'm going to jump right into that. Uh, I'm going to skip dinner and play till midnight and just keep going. You know, I, it was amazing um, how you can just, that's a game in itself. And there's apps that are out there, how to schedule your, pick your top 20 tournaments, how to line them up so that you have your best chance again. Right. Anyway. So the, uh, the other thing that I thought was neat when I went was that a lot of times you're playing with the designer. So you, your your game was a perfect example, Awakening, right? Labyrinth, The Awakening. I, I know that Mark Herman plays For the People, maybe We the People, or, or Washington's War, I guess, yeah. at this point. So uh, it seems like there are a lot of designers in the mix as well. Did you see that? Yes, I ran into both Mark and um, Ed Beach while I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really cool to see them and see what they're working on in terms of upcoming designs. Um 
it's, it's also a way to reconnect with friends. I mentioned I was at Georgetown. While I was doing the demo for Labyrinth Awakening, there was eight or ten people kind of huddled around my map. And this one person was the one asking all the questions. I could pick up his voice. I knew that voice. <laughs> but in, for the longest time, couldn't I, I didn't know what he was, who he was. I didn't think to look at his name tag. And after it was over, hey, it's Gary. He used to, when I was at Georgetown, he'd come to my house and we'd play Empires in Arms. I always played the British. We did two full games of Empires in Arms every Wednesday night, you know, for two years. And uh, it was cool. He worked for Mitre Corporation. Great guy. Now he's retired. Lives in the area. Yeah. Actually, he's moved to, I think, Washington State or somewhere around there. But we connected back at WBC because I could recognize his voice. How cool is that? (laughs) How cool is that? Yeah. That's good. Well, it sounds like a great trip. I'm, uh, I'm jealous. Maybe next year. Yeah, the proximity with Gen Con. Actually, I, somebody said next year that they're they're going to be overlapped to some extent, which I think is bad. Um, but uh, have some tough choices to make. So you're working on Labyrinth Forever War, and you're taking time off to go to these game conventions. So I'm shocked that you have free time, or you're spending your free time elsewhere. How, how's that going? How's Forever War going? Very well. We're in the last two weeks of beta playtest. We've had some phenomenal playtesters give us lots of feedback. I just did my final revision of the cards, I think, two weeks ago. Um, and sent the, Actually, it was right after I came back from WBC we did the next revision. Um, and it's a different deck. It feels a lot different than both Labyrinth and Awakening. There are fewer, lower ops cards. There's a lot more one-ops cards, which forces players to think differently. And this is to model the decreasing U.S. commitment towards the Middle East that we've seen recently with pulling out of Iraq for sure and drawdown in Afghanistan, even across the board, uh, aside from the dismantling of ISIS uh, that we saw mostly as an air power game. There hasn't been large commitment of U.S. forces and, and no regime change activity at all in uh, this second expansion, quite frankly, even in the first expansion, or the first expansion as well. Um, so we're, we're modeling that in different ways, but the events are really cool. They're ripped off of the headlines. Everything from 2015 to today is fair game, uh, and, and including events that are not tied to the Middle East. For example, the talks with North Korea play into the game because they are a distraction or an opportunity for the U.S., but it's a tying of political capital of the United States president away from resolving G- the global war on terror, GWAT. And so he's engaged there. He's engaged with China. How the China trade war plays out determines how many cards the U.S. player draws in Labyrinth, which is a new mechanism that we're adding in. And the the way you play that out is are, are the U.S. and China abstractly aligned together in the GWAT? Um, and, and both players can manipulate that. So it makes for an interesting side game, which determines the U.S. player's draw. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, so let's just go at the highest level, go through the math. How, how many cards were in Awakening? There's always going to be 120 cards in the deck because it's a time mechanism. Once the de- once you can no longer draw a card to refill a hand, the game immediately goes into sudden death scoring. So 120 cards. How many do you re- how many did change out then for this uh, Forever War? Quite a bit more. There's only a couple of cards that show back up. There's uh, martyrdom operations is in the every single deck game it's a key card there's um the u.s presidential elections in every card game but there's a variant of it this one's tied to russia russia has a modifier on the u.s election based on their posture um then there's um oil price spike but in this case we have an oil price drawdown because they're for much of this game the prices are pretty low and um and so we're showing how that would affect what happened right. in the middle east right so. interesting 
So do you want to talk about a few of the events yeah, of interest? Yeah. So um, one that I really like, and, and Playdeck, as you know, Playdeck is about ready to launch the base game Labyrinth. It's going to be sometime in the fall. I don't have the exact date on that, uh, but it'll come out. And then the plan is to uh, do the, the, the variants, the expansions, every six months. So Labyrinth Awakening will come out six months after Labyrinth as an in-game purchase, and then Forever War about six months after that. So my hunch is that Forever War, it's going to go to um, Mark Semenich's team to do the artwork in September. Uh, we'll see you know, how long it takes to finish that up, and I'm guessing production run, everything, maybe about six months. Last time I checked P500, we were at 1,100 orders, so we're well within range to go right into artwork and just finish up our playtesting now. But what Playdeck likes as an electronic version, which they, of course, they did Twilight Struggle, is they like things that the electronic game can do better than the board game can do, which in one case is map manipulations. And I think uh, last time we talked about that there are four countries that change status by flipping over a tile. Mali and Nigeria are added in Awakening, and then we have Syria and Iran who change status in Awakening. But both Nigeria and Iran begin as different statuses in this game than they did in the last game. Um, and then a, a really key card that changes the map again is the Qatari crisis, which we know uh, when that happened, the, much of the countries in the Arabian Peninsula fenced off Qatar, who was kind of seen as a toehold of Iran on the Arabian Peninsula. And so the way we mimic that in the game is before Iran was up kind of northeast of Kuwait, northwest Gulf states, and so they were not adjacent to Saudi Arabia without going through Iraq or Gulf states first. Once the Qatari crisis card is played, there's now a water crossing that allows Iran to be adjacent to both Saudi and to Yemen, which changes dynamics in because the, the jihadist victory condition is two countries have to be adjacent to each other and both of them Islamist rule. So now the opportunity for, if Iran's already Islamist rule, for other countries to fit that equation uh, is, is multiplied. Um, which is easy to show, uh, and, and, and the way we show it on the board game is there's an, an, a marker you place down with arrows pointing to which countries are adjacent. Kind of a little primitive, but hey, it works, and it fits right. on the map, and doesn't. it's not distracting. It's a mnemonic. But in the electronic version, you just draw new lines, and it works out great. <laughs> and then when the card is canceled, you erase the lines. You know? Right. So it works out. That's slick. What's it been like working with Playdeck? Um to finish Labyrinth. So uh, Gary is great to work with. Love working with him and his boss, Joel, are fantastic. They're a small business and they act like it. And they, they are, everybody knows everybody else and they, um, they're good with communication and, and things. And, uh, you know, I mentioned they, they only live about a mile. Their office is a mile away from where I live. So it's a good opportunity for me to go up there and show them the bots for Labyrinth, give them some uh, background on that. We've done a lot of sessions there. And then I see them all, of course, every GMT weekend in the warehouse. We right. get a chance to go out to eat or something. Yes. And they came to the uh, San Diego Historical Games That's right. as well. Yep. Hopefully, uh, hopefully again this year. It's good to have them around. Um, and I play so many of their games. You know, I, I, I don't really think about that. But, uh, but um, I, I, Agricola I enjoy on the iPad as well as um, they, Ascension, I think, is also theirs. Okay. Um, or at least their their applications. So uh, I like uh, it's great having them in town. Hopefully they'll get to do some coin. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about that uh, and uh, and their sequencing, which uh, we won't know until they announce. I suspect I know 
but I don't know for sure. So it will be interesting to see which coin they start with. So one of the things that we've talked about is there are clearly games that have influenced your thought process as you go through first Labyrinth, the Awakening, and now Labyrinth, Forever War. Do you have a top four or five list you could share? <laughs> sure. Obviously, Labyrinth is the base game would be number one in that list. And the interesting dynamic, of course, in that one is both sides play two cards simultaneously, Me meaning the Giotis player goes first and plays two cards and the U.S. player back and forth playing pairs, which sets up some interesting combos. I don't think I've seen that duplicated in any other game. I mean, some games will allow you to play two in a row as a special feature, but not by default two every time. So that's unique. Uh, we, of course, we've kept that in the, the two expansions. Uh, looking at other games that have influenced it, I when I started embarking on the Awakening design, I, I realized it's going to be a current event game and what out there is closest to that. And my uh, search led me straight to, um, I guess it's coin game number three, A Distant Plane by Brian Train. And so read his rules, read his designer's notes, fantastic information there. In my own pursuit, tried to mimic that in terms of the level of detail that you're portraying in uh, an ongoing operation. Of course, when he designed a distant plane, and it still is an ongoing operation, much more scaled back. And I've often thought it'd be fun for somebody to design a later war scenario for that because he kind of only covered the first nine, 10 years, not the whole 18 years. Of course, he couldn't. That's still in the future. You know, so that's interesting. So that was a big influence on me. It's, it's uh, interesting, too, that you mentioned that because Brian talks about how proud he is that Volko referenced him in his designer notes to Andy and Abyss, which was Volko's first coin game. Oh, so, so okay. that's, that's pretty powerful, right? Yeah. Uh, and real, so, so interesting that, that Volko would recognize Brian's work and then later on Brian and Volko would work together. Yeah. Uh, on Afghanistan. Um, the other game that was an influence was one that was not yet published, which was Liberty or Death. And I should go into some details on that because your, your journey and my journey in becoming a game designer were about nine months apart. And uh, there was, uh, we, of course, we both went to GMT Weekend at the Warehouse in 2014. I think I described a little bit of that in the last podcast. Um, what you don't know is the influence you had as an individual on me. Um, what... Um, as we were going through this process, I would always ask you, what's next? You know, you're on the P500 list. What's the magic there? How do you interact with Gene? You, there's so many things when you're coming into this as a non-game designer, someone who hasn't worked with the, 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 the key five at the top of the company. What are, you, what are you thinking? You know, so much of my fears about, I'm going to put several hundred hours in this and it's going to get dropped on the floor. Those fears were belayed as I talked to Volko, as I talked to you, Joel Topin, others who are designed in the design process, Mark Simonich, Charlie Kibler all very effective in helping me to understand as a newbie what's going next. Uh, but even more importantly than that was the attitude you brought to it, which was so inclusive. And I, I saw that right from the beginning, Harold. Um, as you've seen over the last five years, as uh, you've invited people into this circle of gaming, uh, the, there's no limit to the pie. I always thought, I got to keep my ideas close hold. Somebody's going to run away with it and do it before I can because I got so little time. That's not it at all. There's a lot of great ideas, but there's very little energy to actually put them on paper and make something out of it. So share your ideas, involve others, make that pie bigger, involve other people. And I saw you doing that. And it helped me get out of my whatever protective barrier that I might have been in and engage in the same process. And I 
I wanted to, even though LOD wasn't printed yet, <laughs> I credit that as a <laughs> inspiration to me and your, what was it? 95,000 words you wrote. Right. <laughs> a lot, a lot of words. Well, I, that's touching. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate uh, the thought. Um, it, it was, uh, the, the, the design experience for me was, was all new. And, and I was lucky to have certainly Volco. Uh, Mike Berticelli was, uh, was wonderfully supportive and helpful as the developer. Jordan Kerr, who's brilliant, uh, was, was, was very, very helpful and had a big impact on that. But these guys are selfless, right? You know, you're, and Gene as well, Mark Simonich, uh, Terry Leeds. Everybody was just terrific. Mm-hmm. There's there's no turf. There's no there's no stress or pressure. There's just ideas and sharing and and um, so so if 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 I portrayed that, it's because I was influenced by all those wonderful people. And um, and you play tested Liberty or Death plenty, <laughs> and uh, really and you hurts. broke it every time you played yeah. it, and which was uh, which was fun. I well, there was a. You you played after the game was finished. You played a game with your daughter, and uh, didn't she? You were playing the British, which you love to play the British. Uh, you like to play the government in any of any the coin game. games. I like you like a lot to of money. play. <laughs> but but your daughter said something funny about. Uh, you'll have to remember it for me. But she said, uh, "Dad, don't the, the, the don't the Patriots usually win? Not when your dad's playing the British." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a good laugh. We were doing your two-player scenario, I think, the one yes. uh, that was published in C3I. Right. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, thanks. Yeah. That was very kind of you to, to mention. So that's two. We've got Labyrinth. We've got Liberty or Death. And um, a Distant Plane. Distant Plane. Really, you could say the whole genre of card-driven games, you know, from uh, For the People, We the People, or, or and, and, you know, Washington's War. It. I'm in the middle of the third round of the WBC Washington's War Tournament right now, and I, I'm just always so impressed with what a chess-like game that is. Even though it's so simple, it plays so quick. It's a great online game, and it was the genesis of this genre that we all love so much. And I, I know Mark was happy to have a chance to do round two of that in Washington's War, and uh, what an exciting game. That's, so that's a game that goes on after WBC even. So um, you kind of mentioned these online tournaments. There, there is a group. Uh, WBC sponsors about twenty online tournaments a year, and so a GM will raise their hand. You know, all the GMs are volunteers at WBC, and then you you play these games usually using the automated card tracking system Axe on WarhorseSimulations.com. Great tool for dealing the cards, rolling the dice, and then it's just text-based entry between you and your opponents. And then you can use Vassal if you want to trade files, or you can play old school like me and put your map out there, which I like so much better because when I'm a Vassal, I'll miss something. But with my map, I can sit there and look at it for 10 minutes, and then the solution pops in my mind about what to do next. Um, and you just trade back and forth. And usually card play a day is the, the pace you try to set, and uh, it's great great system and so when you're playing those tournaments that's a whole separate thing than the normal summer wbc and you but you still get plaques and laurels right so there'll be in effect two washington's war tournaments yes there will be and it might last more than a year and so they won't necessarily have one every year it might go two years and then rinse and repeat you know right right washington's war and if you go back to we the people was the first Mm -hmm. right the first card driven 
right? And Mark talks about it in the simplicity. If he just tried to put some of the events on the cards, I think there's more to it than that. But it's really quite amazing how balanced that game comes out to be and, and true of just about everything Mark does. But it's, it's not just a design. It's a design that plays in a fairly balanced fashion and a very popular tournament. Do you remember how many people were playing, playing Washington's War? I think we have about 60 in the online tournament. I, I, it was paired up with Labyrinth at WBC, so I, I couldn't tell. Right, you missed it, yeah. 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 But yeah. Uh, it, it's quite amazing how balanced that is. I mean, yeah. do, you, do you still find it to be balanced? Or? Yes. Uh, now, they do have, in tournament structure, a slight balance for the British because it's uh, over time people have found strategies for the Americans that are a little bit easier. So the British are able to um, place one extra PC marker at the beginning of the game, and then any time they disperse to Congress, they get to pick who goes first. And then there's two cards. Uh, I think it's Ben Franklin, and there's another one, which if the British play, they get to draw another card. In that game, you're somewhat penalized when you play your cards, the peace cards, or uh, your opponent's cards. Um, but those two are really important, so if you play them, you get another one. So, so that's four. Are you going to give me five, or are we going to have to? <laughs> I think we might have to cut it there. <laughs> cut it there. That's tough. That's tough. Yeah. Well, is, Washington, is Washington's War your favorite game? Um, <laughs> you're gonna be surprised at this. Advanced Squad Leader has got to be my favorite game. Right? <laughs> <laughs> even, even though I uh, I don't play it, I, I I love that in Combat Commander. I, I I cut my teeth on Panzer Blitz as eleven year old, and so my brain is hardwired to figure out tactical tank solutions. Right. But uh, <laughs> that's not what I play. But I love it whenever I can. Right. So. Yeah. It's. Um, I remember the. Panzer Blitz and Panzer Leader. Now, I, I started with Panzer Leader. Okay. Picked it up in a local department store. Didn't have any friends that played at that point. But um, but I remember the, there's a there was a booklet that came with it. Maybe it was in the rules, but it had the diagrams of all the different tanks. And I'd spend hours with that. More than even playing it. I think I spent, <laughs> spent hours looking through those. Uh, I, I, you know, that's one of the things that's cool about tanks. They, it's just, it's such interesting machinery. You don't, it's not good to think about what they're there for, but but it's interesting machinery. Yeah. And and Mike's uh, Mike Berticelli's tank duel is uh, yeah. He's had his designers' copies delivered, so that should be in people's hands uh, in the near future. And uh, and that does a very nice job. You know, so Mike and I started on this together, and I came up with these little tiny tank placards. That were just simplistic and ugly, but the I remember. Terry Leeds did you know, when you tested it yep. in the early version, right? When we first started, and Terry Leeds did the tank placards now that Mike's using, and they're just magnificent. They're, you know, every so the two Mark IVs with different paint schemes, right? It, it, and and rust and different. It just it's amazing what he's done with the uh, with the game. So so that's uh, that's going to capture the. The, the fancy of all of our 12-year-old boys right? <laughs> that's like buried that. deep inside. Um, anything else you want to talk about? That's We kind of covered the, the ground that you and I had initially set forth. Yeah. So let me just share with that, because uh, the development work on Forever War is kind of teamed together with Joel Topin, who is the series developer doing the Vassal modules and a lot of the overarching look and feel of the game along with uh, Volko. But Jason Carr is doing all of the artwork on the playtest version of the cards, and it's not playtest. It is really good quality. He's got this software system where you dump everything in Excel and then push it into a card development tool that, that just populates, you know, from the picture to 
they have flavor text, the card number, et cetera. It's, it's fantastic. And we, wow. we love it. So Jason and I are also working on a six player coin game on the Syrian civil war. I think I may have mentioned that briefly. Yes. So once I push everything over to Mark on forever war, I'm going to jump right back on that. I don't know if I have enough time to get a, a full play test kit ready for GMT week in the warehouse in October, but that's the goal is something uh, along those times. So that's, we'll cover 2012 through 2017. It'll be a six turn game each turn one year with different uh, peace initiatives. And I, I, I've given the flavor text on this before, but it's, it's really interesting to, to mimic how you would do up to six players. You don't need six players to play it, but everybody will be involved every turn on a you know, very different initiative system where you're, you're doing things this turn while at the same time poising for the on deck card. Right. So. That's interesting. You know, um, you, Ever, ever since I saw that, we've talked about it. I've, I've borrowed it for something else I'm working on. Oh, good. We can talk about it at a different time, uh, which, of course, you'll be playtesting uh, at some point. At least I hope so. The the uh, the idea, though, is uh, it, se- it struck me as very being very similar to um, a lot of worker placement games have a place where you can place the worker so that you go first, right? Yeah. And and uh, and, and so I, I thought it was very interesting in that same context, right? That not only are you selecting what you want to do, but you're also selecting where you're going to where you're going to act on the next card, right? Yes. So there's kind of a matrix of things that hits. In fact, what I called it was limited preparation and heavy preparation because you're preparing for the next offensive. You don't have to pick the next card. You could pick something else. There's other good choices out there too. But right, yeah. right. So in Colonial Twilight, I remember uh, Brian Train and Jordan had a very specific idea about how the cards would play out. And that, that two-player coin sequence of play looks like a basically a home plate diagram would work. Yeah. And, and so they had terrific – Brian had a terrific idea about it, but, but it wasn't until they sat and played it. I think initially each card had a sequence. Each card had – Either the French or the, or the rebels would go first, and on each card, and so they played through. Uh, Jordan and Brian played through, and, and and actually found the weaknesses, and and decided to change things, and in the end, remove the the, the sequence from the cards. Uh, you won't have any sequence on the cards, of course. Right. But my only point there was that a lot of times the design process. That, that play testing, right? The simplest of play testing, the play testing between two designers um, is, is what kicks out uh, and, and creates new opportunities. So I, I look forward to you guys playing that and, and hearing about how, uh, how you adjust it for, for effectiveness. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that there's six factions, some of which will be played by, you know, two factions might be played by one person if you have less than six players. But there's four rebel factions and two government factions. But that can change. Rebel factions can become government over time, as ISIS did for the area they controlled. Or if someone takes over Syria, for example, they might uh, become the new government faction. Then you swap cards. But the cards themselves are generic in terms of the event cards. It's just the, the player aid card would be different. Right. Thanks for coming over. It was great. Uh, these podcasts, uh, as always, I think the best sound quality comes from face-to-face interaction. I think the best questions and discussion comes from face-to-face interaction. So it's a treat that you're here close and you have something very interesting to talk about. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, you know, we'll have to do more of this. So, so thanks again for taking the time. And I just realized that our two podcasts together represent, in a way, what it's like to be a newbie in the design field. Because we've talked so much about our experience from 2014 plus, and uh, 
for those that are out there who are thinking about jumping in and design, there's some, some good notes there. Yeah, and jump in. Yeah. Right? That's the advice. There's, room and there's plenty of room. Plenty of room. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games group on Facebook and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Raleigh, North Carolina-based band Funkaponya for their intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Trevor Bender. And that's it for me. As always, I'm still trying to figure out why the definition of a war game actually matters. And I'll be back soon.